Good morning. Before beginning with the gospel text for today, which comes from the book of Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20, I want to draw your attention to our liturgical wonder and point out that yesterday was the coronation of Mary in heaven, all known as the queenship of Mary. This observation is based on the belief that Mary, upon entry into the kingdom of heaven, was crowned as queen. The queenship of Mary is by the twelfth chapter of Revelation, in which the apostle John describes the woman who gives birth to the man-child, who will rule all nations, and whom the dragon, who we understand to be Satan, is to devour. But, just as when Herod attempted to do the work of have Jesus killed on earth, but Jesus was spared by the message of God, sent the angel to Joseph, who delivered both Mary and Jesus away from danger. In this book of Revelation, we see the woman and the child delivered from safety, away from Satan, the dragon. The dragon, Satan, is then cast from heaven. The process sweeps his tail and takes one-third of the angels with him, who become army of demons here on earth. In this vision of John, in which he saw the kingdom of heaven, the apostle John described the woman giving birth to the Messiah, and therefore we can easily understand describing a vision of Mary, who we know gave birth to Jesus the Messiah. And she has the moon under her feet and is crowned with a crown composed of stars. Many of the earliest Christians described the moon as the church and all of its, and Mary's crown of stars as the twelve apostles. They have a day on our calendar set aside to acknowledge that Mary, while fully human and not in any way in herself, does have a unique and privileged place in the kingdom of God. And it is the kingdom of God, as established in Christ's church, that we want to look at this morning. In Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, we see an interesting interchange between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus asks them, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? From this question and the disciples' response, we know that the disciples are used to Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. There's no confusion, no need for clarification. The disciples go straight to providing an answer to Jesus' question. They tell Jesus, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. There is, among the people, an understanding that Jesus is somehow from God, but there's not that clear understanding that Jesus is, in fact, God incarnate. There is more of an understanding that Jesus is from God in the way of being able to do amazing things, with the power of God, but not God himself. This is not actually a surprise. The Old Testament is filled with examples of the power of God made manifest through the various apostles, excuse me, through the various prophets. The fact that Jesus could do miracles like the prophets had done before is therefore more likely to get the people thinking about what they already know, the prophets, than to imagine that God would make himself personally present in human flesh. We cannot blame the people for faulty or incomplete understanding of what they were experiencing. And then Jesus turns the question to his own followers, the disciples, who will soon be sent out as apostles to spread the gospel. 
These are the ones who must truly understand who Jesus is if they are going to be able to tell others. Hearing what all the others thought, Jesus turns to the disciples and asks, But who do you say I am? In Jesus' question, we have another of his gentle claims to be God by the use of the I am phrase. Who is the I am? Who is God? God is the I am. Jesus asks, who do you say I am? Who do you say is God? Simon Peter responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, eternally begotten in the heavens to bring an end to the power of Satan and his arm of demons who were swept from heaven the day Satan was cast out. All of this meaning is contained in Simon Peter's simple but profound statement, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, meaning Simon, the son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. All the rest, all those other people mentioned earlier, all those who would say that Jesus is John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the other prophets, they are using their senses, their flesh and blood, and doing their best to figure out who Jesus is. Their ability to discern, therefore, is limited. But Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon is blessed by God the Father to see the truth of Jesus' identity, and Jesus at this moment declares future church. Simon, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And Jesus is engaged in a bit of wordplay here because the word for Peter is Petros, and the word for rock is Petra. Simon, you are Petros, and upon this Petra I will build my church. I will point out that the word Petra is used many places throughout the New Testament to refer to, or at least imply, the identity of Jesus. There is the cornerstone, who in the words of Peter in his own writings, refers to as the rock, the Petra of offense, that the people rejected, and we know this to be Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to the rock, from which people drank, and says directly that the rock, the Petra, is Jesus. Now in our passage, Jesus is telling Simon, renamed Peter, that he is the Petra, the rock, upon which Jesus, the Petra, the rock, will build his church. What we have here is Jesus giving a unique commission to Peter that will come into effect after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Simon, Petros, Petra, leading the newly formed church, that role of leader of the church is made clear in multiple events recorded for us in the book of Acts. But the point here is not to give reasons why we should believe Peter was the first bishop of the church acting in persona Christi, a Petra on earth to represent the Petra now in heaven. Reading the text of the passage and seeing Peter's actions and miraculous healing powers as recorded in the books of Acts makes that position obvious. Now the point today is to consider the question, why Peter? Peter quite plainly had troubles. Peter almost never thinks before he speaks. Peter is frequently impetuous. Peter makes grand promises that he cannot keep, even when warned against them by Jesus. And most importantly, G Peter denies Jesus repeatedly. Peter could, in light of these flaws, be considered damaged goods. 
But Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church. Jesus could have chosen his mother, whose absolute obedience to the will of God is without the slightest bit of doubt. Jesus could have chosen John, a young man, beloved by Jesus, who would be the one who draws for us the clearest understanding of Jesus' divinity in his telling of the gospel. That would be a great foundation for the church, the one who clearly points out, without any doubt, Jesus is, in fact, God incarnate. Jesus could have chosen any of the other disciples. Now, none of them really stand out, meaning that they must not have done much to attract any negative attention. These are the ones modern managers would likely choose. We don't want people who rock the boat. It was Peter, after all, not one of these other disciples who cut off the ear of the guard. Why would Jesus trust the church to such a hothead? I suggest to you it is because Jesus knew not only the faith of Peter, but that Peter was soon to learn the importance of mercy. Even before Jesus made the pronouncement of Peter's role as the leader of the church on earth, Jesus knew that Peter would cut off the guard's ear. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him three times. Jesus knew that Peter would, when seeing the resurrected Jesus on the shore, put on his outer coat and, as the text says, throw himself into the sea. I must point out this particular comment recorded for us by John. Now I will admit, make a point of saying that most everybody that you may read concerning this action, or this action recorded by John will say that Peter on his coat or his outer garment out of respect for Jesus. I disagree with that assessment. People do not put on clothes to swim. People put on clothes to drown. The more the better. Peter put on his outer coat, an outer coat that was soaked and heavy and pulled him downwards. Peter put on his outer coat and threw himself into the sea. It is my belief that Peter, in his sense of guilt, while confronted with the presence of Jesus, who Peter knew to be God in all of his perfection, attempted to drown himself. But Jesus preserved Peter's life, just like when Jesus caught Peter's hand when he began to sink, that time he attempted to walk on the water. And rather than walk on the water, he sank. All so that Jesus can, once on earth, excuse me, once on shore, ask Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then tend my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he says in desperation. Then feed my sheep. Why was Peter chosen to be the foundation of the church? Because Peter knows mercy, the church must know mercy. Peter, that first bishop of the church, knew in his calling, unlike any other apostle at the time, the truth of these words from the letter to the Hebrews. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God 
to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obliged to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes honor for himself, but only when called by God. May we all be mindful, as Peter most certainly was, of the mercy we need, the mercy we have received, and the mercy we are to extend to the world around us. For that is the calling of the church. Amen.